1 Samuel chapter 13, and we'll start at verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. School replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with him were staying at Gibeah of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned towards Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another towards Beth Horon, and the third towards the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim, facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes, and for repointing guards. So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. 
With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, the other to the, to the south towards Geber. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we, where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that, lo- that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they, are, they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outpost and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who's left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill county of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. Now the Israelites were in distress that day, because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. 
But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder, and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Saul said, let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, you stand over there. I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim, but if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken by Lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. This is God's word. Ooh, that's quite a reading. Uh, why don't we take a minute? Uh, if you know the person next to you, just ask them, what's your big question or questions after reading that lot? Go on, take a minute. Just uh, ask the person next to you.
There we go. Well, I can't, I can't promise uh, I'll answer the questions because we're actually really only going to focus on chapter 13. But um, I thought chapter 14 is far too, far too good just to, just to skip before we get to chapter 15 next week. So you can ask me afterwards if you have questions about chapter 14 that we, uh, uh, that we don't get to. Um, if you're a guest here, you're probably thinking, what on earth have I walked into? Um, we, uh, our practice here at Christchurch Mayfair is we, we just teach through books of the Bible. That's uh, how we usually do it. We just teach through chapter a week, um, looking at, uh, at God's Word and the order it comes. And so some weeks you find things that are culturally a long way from us. And some weeks you find things that feel like they're written right for today. Um, but I think we'll find that there are great lessons for us here. Um, just, to, just by way of introduction, my name's Phil, um, I'm the Assistant Minister here, and if you're here for the first time, it's lovely to have you with us, and I do hope you'll, um, you'll enjoy learning together from God's Word. Let me pray, and then we're going to look at 1 Samuel 13. Father God, we, we pray that you would, uh, as ever, use the words that you have caused to be written, um, not only to reveal truth about you, but to reveal truth about us too, that we might know what it means to trust you that we might live lives um, that glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Now, sometimes the very hardest thing to do of all is nothing. If a grizzly bear charges you, in a realistic scenario in central London, but if a, if a grizzly bear charges you, the best thing to do is nothing. I know. I watched a YouTube video, and um, look, the, the thing to do if you're charged by a grizzly, apparently, is just to stand your ground. Everything in it within you is screaming, run away, climb a tree. But actually, your best chance of survival is to hold your ground. Now, uh, I'm not here to give you advice on wildlife encounters. Uh, it would be a pretty strange church if that's what we did. But if you seek to follow Jesus, then you will inevitably find you go through many circumstances in life where the very hardest thing to do is nothing. Not nothing in in the sense of lying on a sofa and being lazy, but nothing in the sense of waiting patiently for God to act, to work. Keeping on trusting him and obeying him and resisting the temptation to give up and uh, to, to self-sufficiently turn to the stuff I can do. Because uh, I think, look, if I, if I just wait for God, oh man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss out. It's the challenge that Saul fails in 1 Samuel 13. Now, uh, we're in 1 Samuel 13. It begins, uh, Saul was 30 years old. This is the official beginning of his reign in the account of Samuel. Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. 1 and 2 Samuel are the historical account of God raising up a king to lead his people. But the way the king arrives is, you could say, less than straightforward. Uh, in fact, it looks a total mess, to be honest. The king, the king only comes to the people because they reject God and say, we don't want you to rule us, we want a human king, please. And so God has Samuel, his prophet, anoint Saul. And Saul looks, he's precisely the kind of king that people like you and me choose. He looks the part. He's a strapping lad, taller than anybody else. He's physically impressive. They say, that's the man we want. And, well, some things do go pretty well for all of that. In chapter 11, we saw he does what a king can and should do. 
as he rescues the people by defeating Nahash, this brutal tyrant from the Ammonite nation. But the pivotal chapters in 1 Samuel, chapters 13 to 15, the pivotal chapters in Saul's reign, they show that Saul is not going to be the king that God's people are going to need. And God's message in in chapter 12 last week was, look, kingship will work in Israel. You're only getting a king because you've rejected God, but kingship will work so long as the king recognises that they don't reign instead of God, they reign under God. Leading the people, encouraging the people, helping the people to trust and obey their true king, the Lord God. And chapter 13, Saul fails. He fails because he fails to act. He fails to wait. And so God rejects him. Firstly, uh, Saul fails to act. You'll see there's an outline on the sheets uh, to show you where we're going. And you can take notes if you find that helpful. Verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. And when the Israelites saw their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now, it's hard to see anything particularly theologically significant in those verses. But that does change slightly when we remember the context. It's a, you know, CSI, silent witness, whatever. You, there's a, sometimes there's a perfectly innocent-looking scene. You know, they go into a home and everything looks just lovely, clean, tidy, no evidence of any wrongdoing. And then they get their ultraviolet science lamp things. And suddenly, when they shine them on them, oh, you can see this sort of blood spattered everywhere and you realise oh, something, something seriously awful happened here. And that's kind of what happens to these verses when you read them in the light of what's gone before, especially chapters 8, chapter 9 and chapter 10. So uh, chapter 9 verse 16, just a couple of pages earlier, we're told this, uh, when, when God has Saul anointed, anoint him ruler over my people Israel, he will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I've looked on my people, their cry has reached me. Saul has been anointed for the express purpose of taking the fight to the oppressing Philistine army, the invaders. And when Samuel anoints him in chapter 10, he says, chapter 10, verse 5, After I've anointed you, you'll go to Gibeah of God, where there's a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you'll meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with all these musical instruments. And the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you. You'll prophesy with them, and you'll be changed into a different person. Once those signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you which is a phrase that appears um, throughout the, the early chapters for get on with doing something. Now, now take, get up and fight. You're to rescue the people. Do what your hand finds to do. Attack. But he doesn't. He doesn't attack the, the outpost at Gibeah in 10, chapter 10. And while he rallies the troops in chapter 13, he does nothing. His son attacks. The press release says Saul has, but we're told here it's his son who does it. 
It's the same in chapter 14. Saul dithers and Jonathan takes the initiative. Now, Pause. It might not surprise us as 21st century Londoners that uh, Saul wouldn't lead the attack. I mean, if we decided to get a bit more involved in Ukraine and sent the British army, we would not expect Boris Johnson to personally lead them. Quite an image when you think about it. I mean, he will not be leading them into battle. The soldiers here will be very relieved to know that. But in ancient times, that's precisely what kings did do. Back in chapter 8, verse 20, The people said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Saul is God's anointed leader, empowered by God's Holy Spirit to rescue God's people from a brutal invader. But again and again, Saul does nothing. Rallies the troops and then sits under a pomegranate tree. But as frustrating as his failure to act is, it is his failure to wait that is at the heart of this narrative. And that's where we're going to spend our time. Saul fails to wait. Come back with me to chapter 13 and verse 7. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. The man who's just frustratingly passive, who does nothing when he should attack, well, then he fails when all he has to do is wait. He offers sacrifices when he knows, as we're we're told in verse 8, that he is to wait for Samuel, the prophet, to come to do it. It seems actually that Samuel's reiterated the command he made. If you turn back to chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel's, Saul's not done what he was told then, I think. So Samuel's told him again, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down from you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you're to do there. Chapter 10, attack the outpost and then wait for God's prophets. And here, attack God's enemies, he doesn't. Wait for God's prophets, he doesn't. But Saul loses his nerve. And so on the seventh day, he does what only Samuel the prophet was meant to do. And he offers these sacrifices. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read Saul's explanation in the next verses, I think it sounds pretty reasonable. Look at me. Look with me at verse 11. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, look, when I saw that the men were scattering and you did not come at the set time and the Philistines are assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. He's got a heavily armed force marauding through his land his own troops are terrified we know from the end of the chapter that they've uh, they don't even have swords and spears they're going into battle against 3,000 chariots with some rusty pruning shears and a couple of spades it's like the the fabled story of the Polish cavalry in 1939 uh, drawing their swords and charging on horses towards the Nazi tanks Now, the Israelites may have been outnumbered and outgunned, but actually on that first day when Saul gathered them, he had good reason to feel confident as they mustered around him. 
Uh, who cares? They've got chariots. Don't you remember what God did to the chariots of Egypt at the Red Sea? So we haven't got weapons. Don't you remember what God did to the walls of Jericho when all we did was shout? Don't you remember that when Samuel came and offered the sacrifice at Mizpah a few years earlier, the Philistines were routed by God without us even having to raise a sword? You know, the Ebenezer stone still stands to this day to remind us of that. And Samuel is on his way. He's going to offer another sacrifice. The Lord is going to act and the Philistines will be routed. You've just got to wait, guys. But of course, the days pass with no word from Samuel and no sign of his arrival. And each night, a few more soldiers steal away. And each morning, the company that gathers to muster are a, a little bit more sparse. Each day, Saul has to try and sound confident and courageous as the fear spreads through the army like COVID in a packed tube carriage. And just, you can feel the tension. And then finally, the seventh day comes and goes. And as the sun begins to set, Saul thinks, I've got to do something. As the men began to pack up their tents, he cracks. He says, bring me, bring me the stuff. I'll make the offering. And he takes action because, verse 12, I felt compelled. It's very interesting. I felt compelled. What else could I have done, Samuel? You left me no option. I waited and waited and waited until almost the last minute. I had to do something. I have to say I read it and I think, would I have done any differently? I'm not sure I'd have lasted to the seventh day, maybe. Would you? Now, whatever we think, though, about the reasonableness of Saul's action, Samuel gives us a very different perspective. And it's not just his hot take on things. He is God's prophet. This is God's authoritative voice interpreting the action. Verse 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Uh, you have done a foolish thing is a single word in the Hebrew. Samuel begins, fool. Fool. Ouch. In what sense has he been a fool? He's not kept the Lord's command. In his commentary on 1 Samuel, the theologian John Woodhouse points out that Psalm 14 declares, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And the point he makes there as he talks about this passage is that foolishly denying the existence and power of God is not necessarily a matter of what I think with my mind or or what I say with my lips. It's a bit deeper than that. What drives my behaviour? What's going on in a heart level? Now, it's interesting. Look back at verse 9. Remember, the, the thing that he's done is offer a sacrifice to God. But verse 9, do you see how it's put? Three times the offering is mentioned. He said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering just as he finished making the offering. Three times the offering's mentioned. Do you notice what's missing each time? You've got to be careful to read too much into silences, but it's never called an offering to the Lord. See, Saul is not making this offering as an act of devotion to the God he trusts. 
He's acting out of fear of man, not faith in God. Whatever he says, the truth is that in his heart, he trusts numbers of men, human power to win the battle. And so he's just performing whatever ritual will galvanize the troops. There is nothing of God in Saul's action. And so Samuel warns him, verse 13 to 14, your dynasty is over before it's begun. Now Saul will wear the crown for a couple of decades more really, but his legacy will not last. And there is a very tragic symbolism to verse 15. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. God's prophet leaves. Saul will rule without the guidance of God's word. But God's intention to raise up a king for Israel is not done. Verse 14, the second half. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him the ruler of his people. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know this is, uh, this is David, the man who fulfills it. And, but David actually fails God in a far, far worse way than, Paul, than Saul does here. But unlike Saul, David repents when he sins. Again, got to be careful seeing what's not there, but there is no repentance from Saul. No acknowledgement of his foolishness, his disobedience. He just gets up and gets on. So Samuel leaves, and Saul is left with uh, 600 men with almost no weapons. And what follows is just a thrilling account, chapter 14. It's amazing. You want to watch the movie of chapter 14. And Jonathan takes the initiative his father lacks. He seeks God's will, he trusts God's strength, and he attacks the Philistines. And God uses his faithful action to bring total panic to the Philistine camp. You see Jonathan, this man who's courageous, humble, and full of faith. But he will never reign because of the sins of his father. Saul, meanwhile, is passive. He doesn't lead the army. He's foolish. He forbids them from eating when they're so tired that they can't press home the advantage. And he's stubborn, insisting, I will put him to death for his silly curse. Eventually, the army have to say, no, you're not going to do that, mate. There's a lot you could say about chapter 14. But if you step back, there is one big point, which is, in spite of Saul's failing... God is still active to save his people. God's able to save in spite of the sin and stupidity of the people who are supposed to serve him, which is very, very good news for weak and fallible people like you and me. As I said, if you've got um, other questions about um, chapter 14, do feel free to ask me afterwards. But let's, let's home in on what we've been looking at in chapter 13 and the lessons for us, as ever, the biggest lessons of the Bible about God. And we need reminding of that because instinctively, uh, those of us who are Christians and read the Bible, we we instinctively put ourselves at the centre of every story. And we read ourselves onto Saul. Would I be like him? And it's not completely a wrong thing to do because like Saul, you and I are humans. And like Saul, we struggle to trust God when the pressure's on. All Christians need to admit to that. But Saul is the anointed king of God's people. And the first place that Saul points is not to you and me, but to Jesus Christ. The the book of 1 and 2 Samuel are are quoted only three times in the whole New Testament. And one of those times 
is 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. And the Apostle Paul, as he's preaching in Acts 13, he quotes this verse and says, this man after God's own heart, it was David, and actually it points through David to David's great-great-great-great-great-grandson, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the man after God's own heart. He is the anointed king who is everything that Saul fails to be. And so the first thing that 1 Samuel 13 does is by showing us a contrast, it helps us to see the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly and how good he is. It helps us to see his patient obedience as we see Saul's failure to wait. We see Jesus who obeyed God perfectly under far greater pressure than Saul and did not give up. And the night before he died, as Jesus sweat blood, praying in agony in the garden of Gethsemane. He begged God for help and he resolved to trust him. And he saw his, his army of followers, only 12 of them, scatter away. But he kept God's commands and trusted him. He was betrayed, he was spat on and he was condemned. But he kept God's commands and trusted him. He was flogged and beaten with an absolute bestial savagery and nailed to a cross. But he kept God's command and trusted him. He endured the mockery and hatred and scorn of people he'd come to save and the full unbridled assault of Satan and all his demons. But he kept God's command and trusted him. He was cut off from God his Father, bearing the full weight of human sin. But he kept God's commands and trusted him. Finally, he died. But even then, when all was lost, he did not give up on God, but prayed, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then on the third day, long after human hope had evaporated, God answered and raised him from the dead. And the thing I hope we see most clearly in Saul's, let's be honest, reasonable, understandable failure is the Lord Jesus' thoroughly unreasonable, extraordinary obedience. Rejoice. To be a Christian, if you trust in Jesus tonight, is to know that your eternal destiny doesn't rest on, on whether you can keep obeying God when the pressure's on and make it as a Christian. Your eternal destiny is grounded in the certainty that Jesus did not, will not, cannot fail. That's why we call it good news. That's why Christians sing with joy. Because our king, our king is a king you can trust. So rejoice and trust in Jesus. But of course, as well as God's king, Saul was a human like you and me. And it is right too to think about the challenge for us of waiting. And for those of us who do call ourselves Christians, sometimes the hardest thing that we have to do for God is nothing. Is to wait patiently, obeying God obediently. To wait when it just makes no sense humanly speaking. 
to wait when we're, we're tempted to grab with our own hands what God doesn't seem to be giving us. To wait when our friends tell us we're absolutely mad. Look, I, you know, I respect you've got a faith. I, I, I really do. I know it's important to you, but, but mate, you've got to be realistic. Your faith is stopping you having the life you deserve and you need to do something about it. I'm telling that as a friend. I remember uh, meeting up a few years back with a, a friend from university. She knew the Bible said, um, for good reasons, if you're a Christian, you should only marry a Christian. But she said to me, the Christians aren't asking and I'm tired of waiting. And a few months later, she agreed to marry her non-Christian boyfriend. It's hard to wait. It's especially hard when we look around and see others disobeying God and getting the things we long for in life. And our obedience, our waiting and trusting, it can feel really stupid to us. And it looks ridiculous so often to our friends and family. So how do we do it? Now remember, waiting patiently doesn't mean doing nothing. Of course you should take active steps to pursue the things we want. But it means we won't stop obeying God while we wait. We won't disobey God to get what we want, what we think we need. So where do we find the strength to do that? To wait when the opportunities seem to be passing us by. To wait as we hear the clock ticking. And we fear that obeying God might mean we miss out completely. To wait when people tell us we're mad and need to get real. I'm not sure if you've seen the film The Big Short. It's, um, it's about hedge funds. <laughs> There's a thrilling premise. The, uh, it's, uh, it's based on a true story. I'm sure a number have seen it. Um, the, um, about the 2007 housing market crash, the global crash. The key protagonist is a hedge fund manager called Michael Burry who digs into the data and sees that the evidence is absolutely unequivocal. There is going to be a monumental crash. Others aren't seeing it because they're just so invested in the market and so busy making money that no one is just looking at the, at the data properly. But he knows. And so he takes out an enormous short position. There'll be lots of bankers excited to tell you what that means afterwards if you don't know. Don't worry. But he takes out this enormous short position, which means he'll make a fortune if and when the market crashes. But then he has to wait for the crash to happen. And every month... The, the fund that he's set up has to pay a huge amount in margin payments to maintain this position. And every month, the investors are getting more and more jittery, saying, we're losing massive amounts of money. You've got to close this position. Enough. We don't trust you. This is crazy. Nobody else thinks there's going to be a crash. It's only you, and we don't think you're right. And he says, I know. I know what the evidence says. I'm not budging. Eventually, of course, in 2007, the market's explode and his profit is 2.69 billion dollars which is a good day's work the <laughs> to be a christian is to say in one sense i don't care what others say i know the evidence jesus christ rose from the dead and i know therefore that i'm not mad to trust in him i know god doesn't fail his people and so i will wait i will wait there is no guarantee that uh, if we wait long enough, God will give you what you want in this life. 
the gospel, the central message of Christianity, reveals a God. It reveals a God who is unbelievably kind and generous. And so often, those of us who follow him would say, he is, he's been inexplicably kind and generous to us in this life. But there's no promise we'll get the things we want in this life. But what the gospel absolutely promises and guarantees is that it's worth waiting obediently. Because the one who sustains us in this life, when he comes back, he will positively drown us in blessings in the life to come. So trust this God. His reward is always, always better than what we can grasp by disobeying him. And remember, life is not on hold while you wait. He is with you in the waiting. He is at work in it. The waiting is for our good. Ultimately, the waiting stirs in us hunger and longing. Hunger and longing for him. Him who alone can fulfill us. And as we lean into him in the seasons of waiting, we grow deeper in our knowledge and love of him. The call to wait is a call to action. It's a call each day to meditate on God's character and promises as we read our Bibles. A call to meditate in particular on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who waited and obeyed. It's a call to pray and to keep on praying, confessing our lack of faith and asking for a deeper trust. It's a call to press into relationship with him. And it's a call to encourage one another because I can't keep going without you. And you're the same. The prophet Isaiah wrote this 700 years before the Lord Jesus would wait obediently. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Jesus will come, he will bless, and it will be worth the wait. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the amazing story of 1 Samuel 13 to 14, but we thank you at the heart of it is a message of such encouragement that where Saul failed, the Lord Jesus succeeded. Help us, we pray, to trust him. And as we follow after him, to wait patiently, knowing that you will bless your people. And we ask this for the Lord Jesus' honour. Amen.